Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Welcome to season three of the Voices of UMass Med podcast. We have this conversation at a crossroads. Around the world, much has been upended by the coronavirus pandemic, yet life, learning, and research continue. It's August 2020 as we record this, and medical, nursing, and PhD students are in classrooms, labs, and clinics, albeit with masks, distancing, and a newfound appreciation for an invisible threat. Today, we are fortunate to speak with Dr. Michael F. Collins, Chancellor of the University of Massachusetts Medical School and, of course, Senior Vice President for the Health Sciences across the University of Massachusetts system. Welcome, Chancellor. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start. If you could just paint us a picture, what is life like right now on the medical school campus? Maybe subdued excellence. How's that? Um, It feels different. It feels quieter to me. Um, People are very respectful of all the requirements we've asked them to put in place. So they're wearing masks, they're distant, the dining hall is empty, Um, labs are vibrant, Uh, small gatherings of students in socially distant classrooms are are, uh, occurring. Um, There's sort of a seriousness of purpose on the campus. Um, It's a little bit unusual for me. I'm in my office alone. The door is closed. And as such, I don't have to wear a mask. But um, so that's it just feels a bit subdued to me. And you just hit on the one exception to the universal mask policy when folks are in their office alone. But everywhere else, people are wearing masks. I uh, never venture outside my office without it. I have it in my car. So when I come out of the car in the morning from that point until I get inside my office and if someone comes in, I put it on. And um, yes, I think people are taking very seriously the uh, advice that's been given. In a way, all of us have um, entered into a social compact one with another. Um, And we recognize that by wearing a mask, we're actually keeping others um, safe. And I think that's um, that's the principle behind all of these actions, that each of us is taking action to keep others um, safe. Everyone certainly has risen to the occasion. Masking is one important element. Testing is another. Um, and recently you had an opinion piece that you wrote that was published um, by the Boston Globe in which you said, quote, the most essential element for a safe reopening of higher education or other institutions must be frequent testing for the presence of COVID-19 infection, end quote. So I'm wondering why you feel that way, and how has UMass Medical School put that philosophy into action? I don't want to underestimate the importance of mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing, symptom reporting, all things that are extremely important. I don't want to underestimate the importance of those. But one of the things that I believe will allow institutions to come back, maybe to some semblance of how we knew them, is through testing. And uh, so the decision that we made when, when we ramped down our research in the, uh, in the spring, one of the things we did was to um, test everybody who would be coming back to campus. What we did was we uh, made an evaluation of people who would be on campus more than two days a week. And all of those folks 
drove to a parking garage at the other end of the campus. Folks in personal protective equipment were there with these long swabs that went, you know, way into the nasopharynx. And we tested around 2,300 people. And um, we found very few positives. I think it was three. And, uh, and then shortly after people started coming back, we, we decided that it would be important for us in order to keep the environment safe, to do what we're calling surveillance testing. So on a weekly basis, every single person on the medical school campus who is on campus more than two or two days a week um, has the, uh, must be tested. And it's a relatively simple uh, process. We're doing this in, in partnership with the, with the Broad Institute, a terrific research institute uh, that is a collaboration between Harvard and MIT that made testing available for institutions of higher education. And, and so for a very reasonable fee, about a quarter of what it would cost if it was done commercially, um, every employee, so I'll describe my experience. I take a short walk, maybe 100 yards down the hall. I say good morning to the person. I proceed to a desk behind a plexiglass uh, covering, uh, a person sits, that person checks me in, I show them my, my license, they confirm with me my date of birth, my address, my telephone number, my email address, and then when that's all done, a label prints out that has my name and date of birth and a little code on it, that gets put on a, on a what I'll call a mini test tube, and I'm handed a, a, a swab a swab that's about a third of the size as the one that was put up my nose over in the parking garage in May. And then I walk to a station where there's someone who observes me open the swab and put it in my right nostril for 15 seconds. And I take it out, put it in my left nostril for 15 seconds. And when that's done, I twirl it around on the inside. And when it's done, I put it in the tube, put the cover on it, goes in a little box and shortly um, thereafter that tube is driven to Boston and within 24 hours I get a communication from the Broad um, that I'm negative. I was going to say positive or negative but all my tests have been negative and I hope it stays that way as does everyone else who's tested and uh, one of the things we've done which I think is very important is that we we post all of the results every week uh, on the website. Not that Michael Collins had a test and it was negative, but that I am one of the numbers of people who are tested. And in the course now of five or six weeks of testing, we've had four or five or six positives, not more than that. And then what we do, if there is a positive, um, when the test result is done, uh, the system we've set up with the Broad automatically sends me an email and sends an email in my instance to employee health in a student's instant to uh, student health. And if it's a positive, um, then that the person who has been found to be positive is immediately contacted and a whole protocol of retesting that person to make sure that the test result is, is positive. And then all of the things you've heard about contact tracing, who's that person been in touch with the last 72 hours, where do they live, all that. And, um, 
And, and we're fairly strict about that. If you get a positive test, and we've only had a few, but when you get a positive test, your badge is turned off. You're not allowed to come back to the campus for, for, um, for 14 days. And our folks are regularly in touch with you to be sure that you're um, at home quarantining. And, uh, and, and frankly, we're looking after our people who have, have turned positive. And I, I think that the, as a result of all of this, the campus community feels quite safe. And as you, uh, as you say, that testing protocol, which is very detailed, has allowed more than 2,000 researchers and students to return to the campus safely. It's been essential to the return. The fact that people can come and know that everybody that they're surrounded in a particular week is also negative gives a certain sense of confidence that we're in a safe environment. And, uh, and I'm, in, I'm very encouraged by the low rate of positivity. We, we knew there were going to be positive. There were going to be people that were going to be positive. But the fact that the vast majority of the people who are tested every week are negative tells us that they're wearing, the folks are wearing masks, they're socially distancing, they're not out and about it. Some of these parties you see on TV or beaches that are jam-packed. And that's, you know, it's kind of what we expected would happen being a medical school campus where mostly scientists and doctors and nurses are here. But it's good when your hypothesis actually proves true. I'm sure. It's very reassuring. So even since the earliest days of the pandemic back in March, there have been upwards of about 20 labs here at UMass Medical School working on COVID-19 related research. And I want to just give you a chance to talk about one of them that was recently awarded more than $100 million from the National Institutes of Health. This is part of the NIH's effort to accelerate um, accurate, fast, easy-to-use diagnostics for COVID. Just how promising are some of these uh, research projects that are underway? Well, I think one of the things that's amazing about our research enterprise, and it was again, just another amazing thing about it, was that, you know, 19 labs pivoted more or less on a dime, like immediately, and, um, and undertook research projects that were COVID-related. The one you reference is um, a research project led by David McManus. He happens to be a cardiologist. He also happens to be very interested in artificial intelligence and the use of diagnostics. And he has been awarded a grant to more or less try to find the best point of care COVID test that might exist. And the theory would be, and pardon, I hope Dr. McManus wouldn't mind this explanation, but I think he's hoping that he could find a way to have a machine that might sit next to your coffee pot, let's say. And in the morning when you wake up and push on for the coffee pot, you could also put some saliva into the little box that sits next to the coffee pot, turn that on, and before the coffee's perked, you would know whether or not you were positive or neg negative with coronavirus. And just imagine the utility of that knowledge. You. If you were a child, you could go to school safely. If you were an adult, you could go to work safely. If you were a caregiver, you could go to work, work safely. If you were caring for someone who was homebound, let's say, you could do that safely. And that's really, well, we'll, we'll look back on testing 
in a bit, and we'll say, boy, I remember that day in the garage where that medical student put that swab so far up into my nasal pharynx, I thought I was getting a brain biopsy. And now we'll be saying, oh, all I have to do is put a little saliva into a little machine that sits next to the coffee pot in the kitchen, and I know in five minutes that I'm negative. Now, just imagine how, what a game changer that would be. And uh, so uh, there's an initiative at the NIH called RADx that has taken hundreds of millions of dollars of funding to try to work on the discovery of the best point of care tests. And Dr. McManus has been provided funds to, um, to work to create one of those point of care testing uh, mechanisms. It's pretty exciting, frankly, to have such groundbreaking work being done right here on our campus. It sure is, and, and we certainly wish him the best in, in terms of making some rapid progress. You know, it, it, we started this conversation by talking about how the world really is upside down from what we anticipated it would be maybe six months ago. And I just am curious, as a leader, how have you and colleagues throughout the medical school adjusted your priorities and your style in response to the pandemic? And, and do you feel like you've been stepping outside of your comfort zone since this all began? I don't know that there is a comfort zone around COVID, to be perfectly frank. Um, so what has it been like? Well, I never thought I would ever be able to say it's now been almost six months since I was on an airplane. I mean, I used to travel, you know, three, four times a week to different places. Um, I haven't been out to dinner since March 12th. I couldn't imagine ever saying that because, you know, I've always said, if you couldn't do the night job, you couldn't do my day job. And, but um, I think the, the most serious things for me have been around decision-making. And what I found was particularly early in the pandemic that you'd make a decision that seemed right on Monday that you were modifying on Wednesday and might be changing totally by Friday. And, um, and that's been, that, that was challenging. It continues to be challenging, and I have to say, and I'm not, I'm not complaining, it's just a fact that decisions I'm involved with aren't easy, because if they were easy, those decisions would have already been made. So people are presenting me with decisions that are, you know, very weighty. Now, a um, few other things. Um, I felt I needed to be very present to the community, um, even more present. I, I, I would have felt that I was quite present, but we you know, I've communicated very regularly, done a series of town hall meetings. Um, I'm amazed that people just feel, you know, any filter that I had is gone. So <laughs> people can write directly to me and expect an answer. You know, and sometimes they, I feel like, God, if I don't answer them in a few minutes, that they must be disappointed in me. But so there's been very little filtering. Um, and it goes on all hours of the day and night. Somewhere along the way in medical school, I developed a reverse reflex. And what do I mean by that? Um, you know, I think the more challenging the time becomes, the more pressure-filled the moment, the calmer I become. And, um, and I think that that has been very helpful because I think people have, you know, there's just so much concern and worry and whether it's about a folk's job or whether they're going to get sick or somebody else is sick or what are they going to do with their children who are in daycare and, and they're at home at work. And, 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 and recognizing all of that, um, 
I've been able to just sort of uh, try to, you know, more or less take all comers from where they're coming and try to spread calm and and thoughtful decision making along the way. It hasn't been perfect, but um, it's it it. I do think that um, we're in a much better place today because of that approach, and uh, I've been thrilled at how. Um, assertive our teams have been in communicating with our employees and those for whom it's our privilege to serve. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, it was my goal that every employee would have a communication every few days from somebody else in the medical school. I think for the most part, we've done that. We've had excellent communication with our students and their families. Um, the, the wider university community, we've been very present to them as they've been thinking through you know, testing protocols and how you come back to school. And we've, you know, consulted with a number of, of universities about that. So leadership has taken on many, many different, um, many different facets. You know, one of the things that I, I spend a lot of time on Zoom during the course of the day. And, you know, so I sit, you know, two and a half feet away from my computer screen when I get in the car to drive home at night, sometimes it takes a few minutes for my eyes to to uh, properly focus. But um, one of the things I did, which was kind of cool, was that anytime a child came on to one of the Zooms I was on, I stopped the Zoom and interacted with the child. And I've met a lot of our employees' children. Like parents really, working from home. It's really yeah, been yeah, neat. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and uh, I think the children have enjoyed it. And I can tell you, I certainly have. Yeah. That must be tough to be a leader. You're sort of drawing the roadmap as you're driving down the road. Uh, there's certainly no clear path. Yeah. We're talking with UMass Medical School Chancellor, Dr. Michael F. Collins. So I want to transition a little bit and talk about uh, the moment we find ourselves in uh, as a society where racial justice and equity are really at the forefront of our consciousness, particularly after the killing in May of George Floyd, a black man um, from Minneapolis. So students um, across the country, including here at UMass Medical, have been very vocal in their calls for change, their calls for progress. I'd like you to share some of your thoughts about justice, equity, uh, racial disparities, and how that applies uh, to the medical school. Well, I agree with you. It's the most challenging moment. And I need to state at the outset that I have had the benefit of white privilege. As I look at the challenges before us, you know, in medicine, we often learn how to say, you know, uh, if someone is really sick, you, you shouldn't say, I know how you feel, because you don't really know how they feel. Um, I never had that illness, and I just don't know how you feel. So I don't want to say I know how our colleagues of color feel right now. I don't want to I don't want to say that, but I know it's a very important moment. And I know that any patience that people of color have had with this violence that occurs and this upset that occurs across the nation and the inequity that exists in healthcare and in just about every other um, bit of the fabric of society, that, that it, we just, this is a time which is, this is not going to go away. So we need to we need to be very present to our students and our colleagues, and we need to work concertedly to make things better. 
Now, we've done a number of things. Uh, one thing I'm very proud of, um, months before Mr. Floyd's death, we had crafted and published our strategic plan. We made one change in the mission statement of the medical school, and that was to add the word diversity to it. And one of the reasons we made that change is because we recognized um, that how important it was that we, we, that we deal with issues of inequity, healthcare disparity, um, racial injustice, racism. We, we had already made a commitment to do something about this. Um, it started with um, a number of our colleagues coming forward and talking about the inequity that exists in healthcare. And uh, an analogy that I, I saw, a picture I saw, uh, was of four people riding a bicycle. Now, the four people all had bicycles. There was a six foot two, two guy who had a, you know, sort of a big racing bike. There was a five foot two woman who had a bike that, you know, had. You know, that bar is lower. There was a children's bike for a child, and it was a, one of those bikes you'd see in the marathon for somebody who's disabled doing the marathon. So you could say there was equity that, um, um, you know, everybody had a bike. But what really removed the inequity was that the six-foot-two person's bike fit that person. The woman's bike was a woman's bike. The children's bike was a pediatric bike. And the disabled bike was a bike that had, you know, those special gears on it. It wasn't just that you had a bike. It was they had a bike that was appropriate. And I think in the area of inequity, and particularly around health care and the disparities, is just we know that sometimes the zip code means as much as the genetic code. Maybe even worse. We know that if you wake up in certain zip codes in Worcester, that your, your lifespan is going to be much shorter than if you wake up in the zip code that I live in. And so we were determined to do something about this. Now, amidst all of the challenges that exist in society, whether because of the, uh, the scenes on our streets and the protests and the killings and the election and you know just sort of all the tumult that exists, um, We've been spending a lot of time listening, uh, listening to our students, listening to faculty of color. We have a whole uh, commitment um, around hiring and admissions where we're going to uh, try to do a much better job in increasing the diversity of our classes and in recruiting faculty colleagues of color. We're creating a new position for, of the vice provost for health equity who's going to help us with the faculty recruitment and to assure that our research efforts are, um, are dealing with the uh, inequity and disparities that exist in healthcare. And, um, and in every way, we're coming together to, uh, to listen to each other. There was a very, you know, poignant display. Uh, we called it white coat, white coats for black lives, uh, you know, just sort of at the beginning of the summer where over 600 of us stood outside for eight plus minutes in silence in our white coats, making a statement that what had happened to Mr. Floyd was not, um, you know, it was not acceptable to any one of us. So it's an important moment. Um, 
Um, we're going to have a series of uh, programming in the fall around, um, around these issues. Um, we're going to have a campus read. Um, and uh, and we're going we're gonna to have very meaningful conversations and, most, more importantly, actions uh, around the, all these issues. And, uh, and I, I think we're, we're making progress. It's, again, it's not perfect, but we're making progress. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the, um, the energies which our students and our faculty of color particularly have, have expended to help us um, to move forward and, and to be a, a more equitable community. It really does take that commitment. It's not a one conversation and, okay, we fixed the problem. It really does take that commitment. Yeah. So, uh, That's for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned the uh, White Coats for Black Lives event back in June. You were among the 600 people, uh, the faces who were standing distanced on our campus green. Could you just reflect on that moment? What, what did that mean to you personally? I got to tell you, it was, it was incredibly emotional for me. Um, why do I say that? Well, you know, I guess from my, my perspective of, you know, white privilege, um, I looked around to our students who were there, who didn't benefit from that. I mean, look, at, I, I said at the time, you know, for my car in that street in Minneapolis, I wouldn't have been stopped. I wouldn't have been dragged out of the car. And certainly no one would have put their knee on my neck. It just wouldn't have happened. And as I stood around and looked, I, I saw some of our students of color, and I just uh, it it just was very painful for me to to realize that gee that could be them. I, I saw our chief of police, African American, very principled guy, very thoughtful leader, and you know I had had some conversations with him since that uh, since Mr. Floyd's death, and and uh, and he too had experienced, you know, these moments of, you know, and he's a policeman. He he had been pulled over, and he has three young daughters. And we were talking about, you know, the impact it was feeling for them. And then I looked at, you know, a few of our faculty colleagues, and and recognizing the the challenges that they faced, that that, that they had to face. I never had to face. And, and I just found it to be extremely emotional that so many people, it was way more than 600 people, would come and stand together and, you know, make a point. And, uh, and that point was that it's going to be different from now on. And we're going we're gonna to do our best to commit to making it different. And, um, and it was, a, I don't know, I guess this, you know, it was just a moment. It was a moment of, of profound impact. And uh, I think that it, I, I talked to many people who were there um, later that day and, and uh, to a person, they were saying the same thing. It's, uh, it's a sad day in America where we realize that, um, that folks who are just like us in all ways but their skin color are treated so differently from us. And that's a, uh, that's just something we have to change. And, and I think that 
in medicine and in nursing and in science, we can lead the way. And, uh, and therefore, we should. And coming together is one of the first really meaningful steps to that. So, Chancellor Collins, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's always nice to be with you, Jen. We hope you, your family, and everyone listening stay safe and healthy in this challenging time. If you like our podcast, subscribe to the Voices of UMass Med on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. You can also suggest a guest or topic for a future episode by emailing ummscommunications at umassmed.edu. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.